The spirit of performance defines Acura. And now, it's electric. Introducing the all-electric ZDX, Acura's most powerful SUV yet. While what powers their cars may change, the energy that makes Acura never will. Crafted using the same formula that brought them electrified supercars and multiple IMSA championships, the ZDX has track-tested performance that packs an energy all its own. With a premium Bang & Olufsen sound system and up to 313-mile range on a single charge and a Type S variant with an estimated 500 horsepower, the ZDX is everything they said electric could never be. It was built with the driver in mind, just like Acura's been doing since the beginning. We could talk all day, but the only way to experience this electric performance is to drive it yourself. Unlock the energy and order yours at Acura.com. Market moving insight and analysis. Join Jim Cramer, David Faber, and me, Carl Quintanilla, on the opening bell hour of CNBC's Squawk on the Street. Good Friday morning. Welcome to Squawk on the Street. I'm Carl Quintanilla with Sarah Eisen, Mike Santoli at Post 9 of the New York Stock Exchange. David and Jim have the morning off. Bulls may look forward to putting this tough week to bed. Uh, futures down. S&P set for three weeks lower. Longest streak since February, even with this slight bid in bonds. Got some options expiration today as well. Our roadmap begins with the markets, though, extending this week's losses after major indices closing below their respective 50-day moving averages. Also ahead, the mega cap tech correction led by Apple, this month's worst performer on the Dow. Plus, activism in the restaurant sector. Outback Steakhouse parent Bloomin' Brands up sharply after Starboard Value discloses a stake in the company. We've got more details. Let's begin with the markets extending this week's losses. Uh, not a lot going right. Uh, and today, uh, Mike, a lot of it surrounds uh, China. And, it does, and worries yeah. about not just weak growth, but the debt burden as well. You wouldn't say it's a, a new factor, but it's one that's been on the list of worries. Now it's kind of uh, bold and in italics. And I think you have one of these situations where once you have this pretty sharp break in momentum to the upside several weeks ago, some breakdowns in the, the longer term trend, uh, some concerns about you know, valuation that were always there that are being exacerbated. And then why is the yield uh, become unanchored, uh, treasury yields uh, and even global yields? So all that stuff in the mix. And then you have the, the related concern of, oh, what, what, might stre- what stress points might we see uh, emerge out of that? So all that's in the mix, I do think. Also yesterday with the yields making those new kind of 15-year highs, you started to see the impact on consumer cyclical areas. So housing uh, stocks had been very strong, took a break. Other consumer discretionary as well, which says, you know, the, the people are worrying that it's going to be a little bit too much for the economy if yields continue on that path. What does that mean? It means higher yields can take care of themselves by creating buyers and bonds, which now have uh, good 2% real inflation-adjusted yields to capture at the long end if they dare. You know, the story of the week, no question, was the rise in bond yields and, and the fact that that spooked equity investors and had ripple effects all over the world. What's interesting about this, this backup in yields that we saw is it hasn't been accompanied by rising inflation expectations, at least if you look at yep. some of the market rates. It hasn't been accompanied by rising expectations that the Federal Reserve will raise rates, at least if you look at the Fed Fund's futures market. September's still priced under 20% chance that they yep. go, and November's a little bit higher than that in the 30% range. But it's not like we've seen a spike in expectations. I just pointed out because it's interesting because a lot of the narrative is, well, the f- people are expecting inflation to rear its ugly head. People are expecting the Fed to continue to raise rates. 
Instead, the commentary is around a stronger economy. And that's really been the story this week. Retail sales backed up by housing starts and industrial production. The minutes confirm that the Federal Reserve sort of might see this strong data as a sign that inflation is going to pick back up and they're going to remain hawkish. So I would offer that the explanation here is strong economy. That's a good thing. And that rates will have to stay higher. In other words, that rate cut that everybody's trying to pencil in and Goldman thinks is coming in the first half of next year and so does the market will be pushed farther. And I think that leading up to Jackson Hole next week where the Federal Reserve Chair Jay Powell gives his big speech could be what to watch. How how he portrays the strong data we've seen so far since the minutes because the minutes were a few weeks old and since then the data's come in strong. That's absolutely the current snapshot of thinking and and what the the numbers are telling us. That's why real yields at 2%, that's what's been going up. Now, in theory, I mean, there's one way of looking at it, which is if the Fed's going to stay around here, certainly in September, uh, maybe beyond that, uh, it's almost like the long end of the market has to restrain this economy or ration demand or do something in response to the strong growth. But also, Treasury supply is is, is not insignificant here. So if, if the explanation partly is you know, we have to offer bondholders on the long end a better return to absorb all the supply coming with deficits where they are and not looking like they're going to really come down much. Uh, That's a piece of it that's a little bit less optimistic than it's just economic growth. Um, Although I do agree that's the main factor here is basically pricing out a recession and pushing off the ultimate onset of rate cuts. Yeah, Yeah. the fiscal situation in focus. Also the global situation in focus with the change in Japan and the yield curve. I mean, we've seen Treasuries move since then, too. Yeah, J.P. Morgan this morning. uh, The move in yields is less driven by the official shedding of Treasuries and more due to uh, positioning technicals. We'll see. I mean, we talked, we complained about August being uh, a vacuum of catalysts. And certainly it's going to be Jackson Hole Friday. And others today look at NVIDIA and say if they break NVIDIA, RENMAC today, if they break NVIDIA, that could give you a short-term, short-term bottom. Yeah, exactly. The idea that there's not anywhere to hide, even in the most acknowledged consensus, great long-term secular growth play like NVIDIA, uh, that's sometimes part of it. And, you know, you are seeing, uh, after yesterday in particular, the market starting to accumulate some of those signals of getting stretched to the downside. Some oversold, uh, lights were flashing, such as put-call ratios, things like that. Usually this happens in clusters. Usually it's just a precondition. It doesn't mean we've seen enough selling. But between the seasonal uh, effects, which are just working perfectly to script. I mean, this year is kind of ridiculous if you set it up against the long-term pattern of seasonals or third year of a presidential cycle, whatever it is. Um, It's almost to the point where you want to be suspicious of it. But yeah, August is a vacuum of risk-taking capacity. That's one of the things that's out there. Uh, that, that usually comes to bear. I think the other question on yields and the chatter is, is whether we should get used to this. There's a lot of talk now that we're not going to return to those rock bottom right. yields that we were so used to, you know, post-financial crisis. The, the asset managers, PIMCO and BlackRock, talking about higher yields for longer. Larry Summers talking about higher yields Four, for seven, longer. Five, yeah. Get used to 5%, says Bank of America, Merrill Lynch. And, and, I, and that, I think, is going to be a question that will dominate Certainly the fall into next year, if we are getting used to these yields at higher levels, can equities stomach that? Can the economy stomach that? So far, it hasn't crushed the economy, but we've seen a big rise again. And last time we saw a big rise, things can break. We saw SVB when we were at these levels. Right. And, and, And after SVB, the conclusion was the Fed might have to cut. The Fed should be done. Uh, We're going to see a credit crunch. The economy's going to teeter. 
and so I, I only bring that up because it shows you how much the, the numbers and sentiment can change in the, in the span of five months. So five months from now is January. <laughs> or five Let's weeks. Let's not be too confident about what we say January is going to look exactly. like. Exactly. Yeah. Um, as for this uh, recent spike in yields, it has uh, helped to send mega cap tech into correction territory. As you know, Apple's the worst performer on the Dow so far. Now with a year-on-year decline, you got Microsoft, as we said, NVIDIA, Meta, down more than 10% from their respective highs. Uh, Hartnett over at B of A today uh, says that uh, Microsoft is probably the Yule Brenner of the Magnificent Seven. Um, and says that uh, if it can't maintain new highs, the equity narrative overall could flip from buy the dip to sell the rent. Have enough people seen that movie to know exactly uh, what it's, the- <laughs> Jim's done his best no, no, exactly. to uh, create awareness yeah. among the new generation. Subscri- subscribers yeah. to the Criterion channel, trying to figure this all out. Um, I think that's it's pretty fair. I mean, I, I think it's a good experiment in showing the diversity even within this group, right? You have some, I mean, Tesla's been for sale every single day. NVIDIA has been a relative outperformer, holding on to huge gains. Microsoft, um, you know, I think it's, if you look at it on a two-year chart, it seems to fail at the same levels it did a couple of years ago. So you're having a genuine retrenchment. I just think it's the area of the market that had the most air under it. It seemed as if it was, uh, you know, most considered to be, okay, one decision stocks. Yes, rates seem to give people a reason to rethink what they're paying for um, equity and for earnings uh, in the future. On the other hand, these are all massive net cash balance sheets that earn a lot of money on their cash holdings. They're not net debtors. It's not about unprofitable tech where you have to hope for the day when uh, you know, discounted future cash flows are, are added back. So I see it as, you know, also, by the way, if we're talking about a reaccelerating economy, these aren't the things you want to own necessarily when it's all about an economy running hotter. These are predictable growth stories. No, it's slow growth, low yields. Apple, I think, is worth talking about, too, oh, yeah. because that has broken down lately and then now is in a technical correction, right? More yeah, than sure. 10% off the highs. What is that China news? I mean, that's been the other dominant story this week is weak China and are they doing enough to stimulate and are they facing some sort of credit event as they see these falling dominoes in the debt world on top of a weaker economy? which is a bad brew. Yeah. Uh, Wells today, uh, Harvey has a great chart, our table, I guess, of, yes. uh, of names with non-infotech SPX members with 15% exposure to China. Mm-hmm. They've all underperformed. 500 basis points. Las Vegas Sands, EL, Tesla, yep. DuPont, Tapestry. I mean, uh, it's you get very, very sharp Tesla's line. on that list, too, yeah. it's with more than 15% sales exposure, yes. which could be a, a part of the problem. And then they look at tech, too, and... Names are underperforming there as well, like a Qualcomm, for instance, that has some exposure to China. The China factor, you know, Mike, it's hard to read of what what it what it means for the U.S. markets. Yeah. Besides, and we saw first first of all, we saw the Estee Lauder news today on their earnings, and we say where they're getting hit, which is Asia travel, which we'll talk about in a moment. But that's clearly the weaker the weaker China story. But broadly, for the U.S. economy and for the U.S. market, have not seen necessarily a big direct correlation, even no. though it feels, I mean, the Chinese stock market has underperformed greatly and it feels like they're just craving some sort of bazooka or stimulus to deal with some of these problems. Yeah. It, I mean, for a while it seemed like, oh, you know, China is out there struggling with growth, it, dealing with deflation, which can act as a drag on global inflation. In other words, it seemed as if it was helping the things we wanted to be helped, which was reinforcing this inflation story. Now I do think it's more about financial conditions, you know, any any kind of 
financial accident risk that is, is, is rising over there. What's going on with the Chinese currency, you know, uh, even though it has firmed up in the last couple of days as the authorities try to protect it. Uh, I think that always gets people's attention, not because it has a direct feed through to things we care more about, but it's just it's a what it's a if signal. factor. It's a yeah. signal also that they're willing to step in more sure. than they, they have been. I think the $28 billion to cash this week speaks volumes. That was according to the Bank of America fund flows data. So positioning more for risk off or more defensively yeah. positioning. We know that was a huge headwind. That was a huge tailwind in the first half of the year when everyone was getting bearish. Are we getting to those levels again? Um, we're probably edging there. I do think there's a, a psychological hurdle to say, why should I take risk when I can get 5% in money market right. funds? Yes, we're at record levels, whatever, t- going towards $6 trillion or is it $7 trillion? Um, but compared to the market cap of stocks in total, it's not even close. I mean, back in 2008-9, money market funds were 50% of equity market cap. You want to talk about money on the sideline. <laughs> now it's, it's really right in the, the historical range. Meantime, uh, this Reuters poll just crossed. Um, uh, recession odds, uh, in, in terms of the Reuters poll, down to 40% in a year. That's a, that's a one-year low. Hmm. Uh, and the, the market's clearly coming Goldman's way, which is, I think, what, 15 now, percent? They over, keep lowering their, yeah. their own to more negligible levels. So the odds go down of recession and they get pushed farther out. And the question is, in 2024, are we even going to have a recession? Are we going to continue the no landing? One stock that I did want to hit early here, because it's on the move in the pre-market, is Bloomin' Brands, the restaurant name. It's up sharply. Activist investor Starboard Value confirming this morning it has built a nearly 10% stake in the parent company of Outback Steakhouse. Bloomin also owns Caraba's Italian Grill, Bonefish Grill, and Fleming's Prime Steakhouse. Shares are up nearly 30% year to date. This is notable. It's obviously moving a lot. And what I hear about this position is that so far it's a very friendly conversation and a friendly relationship between Starboard and between Bloomin Brand. Starboard, what I hear, thinks that Bloomin is very undervalued. And it plans to use its operational expertise from the Darden and Papa John's efforts, which we know about, to try to help Lumen, um, and looks forward to dialogue with management. The, the friendliness and the looking forward to, di- to dialogue is interesting, guys, because remember, I mean, the Darden story is pretty legendary because they replaced the entire board of directors. I don't yeah. think something that's ever happened in corporate America may never will. And went into that company. They did not spin off the brands. And it was sort of an interesting comp because they have Olive Garden versus yeah. Outback. And they have, they have this conglomerate of different restaurant brands and, and were able to change everything, including the pasta recipe. Yeah, that's right. right? And, and here's the chart since Starboard Steak. I mean, it has far outperformed. It's been a winner even in tough environments like inflation. Look what it's done even since COVID. So Bloomin has underperformed. And it'll be interesting to see what they do there. They also had success in Papa John's, Starboard did, um, when they went in there. Remember, they put Shaq on the board yep. and worked with new management to turn it around after the founder errors there. It's also been a big outperformer. So there's, there's a lot of expertise in this space from Starboard, which is probably why investors are excited. It's um, definitely, you know, looks like a super cheap stock. I mean, it's been more just flat and sideways. That's what Starboard thinks. And, I mean, there's no doubt about it. It's kind of hung on to this very low valuation, market giving no credit for having much of a longer-term growth uh, thrust to it. So that's probably the opportunity there. And as you say, multiple chains figure out exactly how to, you know, starve or feed capital into all of them and how to execute Kind better. of a tough category, though, right? It's oh, not yeah. fast casual. It's not Kava. It's not 
I mean, the, the, they're middle market theory, sit not, down yeah, restaurant. Not, it's the, sort of the wrong part of the. But they did it at Darden, yeah. which was the same thing. Yeah, salt in the water, right? Famous. Exactly. Uh, when we come back, uh, China's economic and property fears, which we mentioned, Evergrande now filing for bankruptcy protection in New York. We're going to head live to Beijing for the fallout on that. Uh, bulls not getting any respite today as uh, we're looking for 1% declines on the NASDAQ at least. More squawk on the street after the break. Electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. Markets definitely watching growing concerns around China's real estate sector today with property giant Evergrande now filing for bankruptcy protection in New York. Our Eunice Yoon is live in Beijing with more. Hi, Eunice. Hey, Carl. Well, I'm outside one of Evergrande's many projects here in China. And the residents have told us that they are concerned that the value of their homes could fall uh, because of all the negative news uh, that they're hearing, even here in Beijing, uh, involving their developer. Now, Evergrande had uh, filed for uh, uh, creditor protection in New York. It's applied under Chapter 15, which states that non-U.S. companies undergoing a restructuring can be safeguarded from creditors looking to sue them or tie up U.S. assets. Now, Evergrande says that its restructuring talks in Hong Kong, the British Virgin Islands, as well as the Cayman Islands, should be considered in a hearing in Manhattan on restructuring on September 20th. Now, to appease investors' concerns about this filing, uh, Evergrande uh, issued a statement to the Hong Kong Stock Exchange today uh, saying that this is a technical move, um, that the application is a, quote, normal procedure for the offshore debt restructuring and does not involve bankruptcy petition. Uh, the filing comes as Evergrande's domestic product, uh, property arm uh, confirmed that it is being investigated by Chinese regulators because of what they described as a breach of disclosure rules. Uh, local media say that the probe is for suspected data manipulation. And then adding to the gloom, a mid-sized commercial developer known as Soho China, which once was eyed by investor Blackstone for an investment in a takeover, said that profits fell 93 percent in the first half of the year due to uncertainty. Meanwhile, guys, just one update on the investors in the trust firm that I was talking about yesterday who had that trust firm had missed payments because it had bet on the real estate recovery. Well, we spoke to some of those investors today, and they said that they, as along with other investors, are now getting contacted by the police and being told not to come to Beijing if they're not already here and uh, not to take their case to the financial authorities. Uh, Eunice, talk a bit about what the PBOC has said in the last 24 hours about uh, supporting not just the economy, but the markets over there. 
Uh, no, it's nowhere near the bazooka that I guess the markets are looking for, right? Absolutely not. These are all incremental steps, uh, as we've discussed before, and that's a, a big problem that a lot of people see. Uh, but the PBOC, as well as the other financial authorities, like the securities regulator, had said that uh, they wanted to do um, take some steps in order to uh, help to support the real estate sector, as well as, for example, the stock market, uh, saying that uh, they would help, they would cut some trading costs, they would support uh, share buybacks. Uh, again, uh, making a lot of statements about um, some level of support, but not really doing enough um, from uh, many analysts as well as economists and just regular people's points of view. Uh, one thing that we are watching from the PBOC is on Monday, uh, they are expected to make a decision on lending rates, which they do every month. And uh, this time, people are expecting a much bigger cut than um, previously um, expected and also that's, uh, than, than would be normal, especially on the reference to mortgage rates um, in order to try to, again, uh, prop up the real estate sector, at least provide some support, although there are many people who think that it's probably going to come too late anyway. Eunice, as I, as I mentioned, it's like you have these two problems colliding in the Chinese economy, these debt issues, which, which seem like dominoes every day we talk to you, and there's another company to worry about. So you've got these debt issues, which leads people to worry about like a Lehman-type situation at the same time that the economy has disappointed and is slowing. It, it feels like two separate issues colliding in a bad way. Is that right? Yeah, I mean, it is. It is. And uh, that's one of the reasons why there's so many people scratching their heads and wondering uh, where is the leadership and is President Xi Jinping going to uh, take some action and, and try to help um, fix the situation. Um, but it just, it is, uh, I mean, just because there are so many issues right now that, that the um, country is facing, it's hard to know exactly which way he's going to go, especially when one of the big priorities has been national security. And even though um, earlier this week we heard from the premier saying that um, is there a way to um, it, that that basically they want to see development and security um, um, or organically, he said, um, um, combined, um, it's you know, it's difficult to say exactly how you're able to do that. And that therein lies another conflict. Uh, indeed, Eunice, uh, very much uh, rocking a hard place between uh, the debt burden and the weak growth that we talked about last few weeks. Uh, we'll talk soon, Eunice Yoon in Beijing tonight. Uh, still to come, Bitcoin sliding to this two-month low. We're going to tell you where Elon Musk fits into that picture as we keep an eye on futures. Got some movers as well. We'll get to Deer, Ross Stores, Amat, EL, Farfetch when we return. CNBC has quick and easy to understand business news updates at the open midday and close every weekday. Markets, money, and more from Wall Street to Main Street. I'm CNBC's Jessica Ettinger. Follow and listen to CNBC Business News Updates wherever you get your podcasts. Bitcoin under some pressure this morning. It's a fresh two-month low due in part uh, to the rate hike worries we mentioned in this report from the journal that says Elon Musk's SpaceX did write down its holdings and has sold uh, the cryptocurrency. Mike, we were chatting at the desk before the show about what, what the cause and effect was here regarding yeah. this price. I mean, a, quitty, a pretty quick little air pocket, uh, even though it's been under some pressure. I mean, I always just revert back to it tends to behave like a risk asset. It tends not to necessarily do well when real 
uh, bond yields are rising, you know, high and rising, similar to gold in that respect. Whatever element of Bitcoin is like digital gold would respond in a similar way. And actually, on a six-month basis, this drop in Bitcoin brings it right in line with the performance of gold recently. So I don't know. I mean, for all we know, there could always be some big sale that's that's hit the tape or some other technical uh, mechanical you know element of this. But to me, it's just like we're risk off right now, and that's hitting Bitcoin as well. And now, of course, the Bitcoin community is very angry at Musk for paper hands and selling out of Bitcoin. I think the more interesting revelation from the article in the journal was the peak inside SpaceX showing that it is profitable in the first quarter and that losses have been narrowing. For a private company that's pretty interesting, that spends a lot on rockets and development. Let's get the open here. And uh, the real-time exchange of the big board, it is Citizens, provider of living benefit life insurance products, celebrating their first AM best rating. At the NASDAQ, it is Cintas, celebrating the 40th anniversary of that company's IPO at the podium. So 43, 36, 35. We we mentioned, I I had to give Jeff DeGraff a shout out yesterday, uh, Mike, because he did say 4,300. That was two weeks ago. Yes. I think to be specific, it's more like in the 4,320s was a particular level. And what's fascinating is that's that's not the reason he's saying it, but it was the high of the day, August of last year, uh, when we went to Jackson Hole and Powell thought the markets were getting too comfortable. Uh, So we've round-tripped to that level. Also, it, it essentially brings us back to late June. You know, we had that big push higher into July. It was a big uh, sort of anticipation of better than expected earnings. There's a way to frame everything that's going on. Of course, as just we had a massive run, seasonal weakness hits in uh, in August. We've had an illiquid bond tape. We've seen the yields spike higher. Uh, we have to have some kind of reset lower. If that's the case, all we're looking for is tactical oversold conditions to to really develop. And as I said earlier, we're getting there on some of those. But uh, if it's a bigger picture issue, if yields really uh, continue to levitate or there's another sense out there that um, that the economy is really just too confusing because the higher economic growth story feeds very quickly into maybe the Fed will ultimately have to kill it next year. Uh, so it's, it's not as if it's a one-sided worry that we're, uh, we're dealing with right now. We just have to wait on yields. And there's no data today and there's no Fed mm-hmm. speak today. So yields are the, the story of where they drift. And it, and it feels like while there's a little bit of a bid, they're still holding these high levels. Best performer right now in the S&P 500 is Ross Stores, which I just wanted to yeah. hit because they reported earnings last night. And this is where the strength is in, in retail. We got it first from TJX this this week earlier, and now from Ross Stores, comps up 5%, a lot better than what FactSet was expecting um, and what they saw a year ago, which was down 7 Gross margins came in better than expected at 27.7%. The CEO, Barbara Rentler, um, while she did talk about the strength in the results, also echoed some of the caution, said despite the recent moderation in inflation, our low to moderate income consumer continues to face persistently higher costs on necessities. So they think it's prudent to continue to plan the business cautiously, but they did raise guidance because of the improved Q2 performance there and the second half sales and earnings outlook. They're expecting comps in Q4 to be up 2 to 3%. Bottom line, this is where the value is for consumers right now in these discount retailers. Ross and TJX. Simeon Siegel ups the target to 127. He's at BMO. He says that TJX is executing better and has better profitability numbers, but because the sales are almost identical, it does show you just the strength of the category there with uh, value. Walmart, similarly, back above the 50-day after uh, Thursday's sell-off. Sarah mentioned EL earlier. That's a fresh three-year low, yeah. uh, down 6%. Even with Asia up 36, 
We keep getting these quarters rolling in. Uh, Ralph Lauren was the other example where you did have China up 50. Uh, but these worries that the, the guidance from EL is, is no good at all. And I guess there's a sense that the travel, once the pent up travel is exhausted, where do the where you where do you turn for growth in that area? There's a few problems. It's not just the Asia travel. It's also North America, and there are signs that EL is losing share because cosmetics has been a very strong category. We heard that from Ulta. We heard that from LVMH. We heard that from which owns Sephora. Uh, we heard it from L'Oreal, and so it does make you wonder what's happening in North America, even though. Estee Lauder is seeing growth. You know, this one was was really controversial of the stock going into the print because it was already down more than 30% year to date. So a lot of the analysts were saying, look, it's it's primed to pop, similar to Target, for instance, which had a lot of negative sentiment going in. And while results were better, the profitability numbers on the quarter were a lot better, and, and so were the sales numbers. It was the guidance, Carl, that you mentioned, and that missed the low bar. Oh, yeah. And that's why the stock is selling off even further. 350 to 375 is uh, fiscal 2024 right. uh, guidance right now. The consensus prior to that was uh, 488. Uh, Stiefel saying the buy side seemed to be more around four dollars. So it did it did undershoot there. Uh, the stock is basically back to where it was at the COVID low in March of 2020. Uh, I think obviously one of the bigger issues too is super expensive stock. I mean, it was considered to be a can't miss. It was in the great category. It had all the the, the right places in terms of global demand, and, and that's just been unwinding very quick. So based on sub $4 earnings next year, you know, you're still pushing yeah. 40 times earnings. Uh, do we want to mention Farfetch uh, on this revenue miss? Uh, give me a five-year on Farfetch. That's an all-time low. Um, J.P. Morgan cuts to neutral. They go from 15 to 6. Yeah. Uh, Key also cuts. I mean, is this, or is this a warning sign about luxury or something else? Well, China was part of the story here, macro pressure there. This is the online retailer that sells a lot of luxury goods. So I think there are cracks in the luxury story, but some are handling it better than others. Yeah. And, and Farfetch clearly is not. I think it was that outlook that really spooked the street and has the analysts downgrading the stock today. Look I mean, at that move, down 38 percent. Wow. Yeah, I mean, this is a this is a kind of a give up. It's 80 percent off of its uh, off of its highs at this point. Although I was, you know, surprised to see still a more than a billion dollar market cap even after uh, even after this drop. Right. Yeah, I mean, Oliver Chen says maybe the wholesale trends and the weaker trends at Farfetch could be a, a read through to luxury department stores wholesale, like like a Nordstrom, which reports next week. We'll see, uh, but. Overall, I think just just weak on the China story and the overall buy. You know, we got a lot of retail results, and there are a lot of confusing signals. I was going back and looking at sort of all the comments that we got. We had Target and Walmart and Home Depot and and some of these other retailers. And while I would say broadly the numbers were better than expected on all of them, there was caution in the outlooks, and, and not necessarily in the financial outlooks, but in the commentary. Even Walmart, which had a good quarter and raised guidance. Doug McMillan warned about risks ahead for the consumer, pressure on the consumer because of inflation and rate hikes and the, and the renewal of the student loan payments. And we really had that theme throughout. Yeah. Home Depot said it, Target said it. So and nobody's talking about recession, but they are warning about the consumer, even with these numbers coming in better than expected, which is just interesting to note on a week where we got retail sales a lot stronger as yeah. well. I mean, Can it last? Well, it was only a few days ago we were talking about B of A and Savita upgrading consumer yeah. and listing all the reasons why the consumer is kind of shielded from 
stress, you know, the student loan notwithstanding. Um, the other, the flip side, I mean, look at Deere today. Uh, 1020 crushes 819, they raise the guide, construction up 19, they raise the guidance on construction to 15 to 20, prior 15, on the same day that Goldman has this note about manufacturing yeah, construction. Exactly. You look at the CHIPS Act, look at the Inflation Reduction Act, they think probably has another 10 to 15% to go from here another quarter million manufacturing jobs yeah. uh, by the middle of next year. It's been an incredible uh, you know, source of, uh, of strength in that one part of the economy. And it's interesting with Deere because I think there's a little bit, even though it's been great and the estimates were going up, you know, farm income in aggregate is due to be down this year. It's basically, it was up last year, down this year. That's one of those things that is sometimes an overhang on the stock, but the construction piece clearly making up for it. And, uh, you know, it's one of those stocks that heavy industrials, they kind of look cheap at the high, you know, at, at the highs in profits. So you, there's a little bit of apprehension. It still does look relatively inexpensive, but uh, I think that might be one of the reasons we're trying to figure out where to from here. Yeah, they, they raise the guide not as much as the beat, so there's a little bit of... Uh, yes, that's one of those... Uh, this one is, was it really a raise? Yeah. Also has to be a, a part of the macro factors and calculation as you as you look ahead and as you wonder why the unemployment rate is still at three and a half percent and that has led to strength across the economy and that is there's so much fiscal stimulus out there still and and there's more coming from the IRA and from the CHIPS Act and, and from the American Rescue Act, which is still doling out millions of dollars to municipalities to build things like health centers uh, around this country. So it, does, it feels like that doesn't get factored into the yeah. models and the economists haven't paid attention to it. I'm not sure the Fed is paying attention to it. I asked Jay Powell about it and at Sintra back at the end of June, and he said, yeah, we see it it's, in the construction it numbers. It is fascinating, though. permeating the economy. It's fascinating because all the legislation passed a year ago, right? The appropriations were there. What has surprised to the upside relative to economists' expectations? I do know a lot. There's a lot more uptake on a lot of the EV incentives. There's a lot more uptake in terms of people saying, fine, we'll take the government money to build something. So maybe that's the difference. A lot of it got front-loaded. It's also in hard terms to know when it gets dispersed. We don't know yes. when it gets, it's been a delayed trickle right. effect. The CHIPS Act hasn't dispersed any amount of money yet, but right. they have more it's than IRA 400 and, applicants. And the IRA is just getting going right. on some of those subsidies. Um, it's so interesting because, hey, what's the subject of Jackson Hole next week? It's structural changes in the U.S. economy or something like that. You want to listen for whether Powell is willing to say maybe we have just structurally tighter labor markets and it's not a linear relationship with inflation. We've managed to see inflation go from nine to three on the CPI with inflation staying at three and a half percent. So just throwing it out there. I think he also has to be productivity careful. effects. He has to acknowledge either either suggest that productivity has some momentum to it or saying don't expect productivity to bail us out because real yields at two percent in the long end suggests that we should have some productivity growth to justify that. Otherwise, it's very restrictive policy. Yeah. Uh, well, the, the Q2 data, as a reminder, yeah. was good. And I think Renmac also pointed out this morning, Philly Fed, where you had yeah. shipments up five, seven, but employment down six. Right. Maybe ma manufacturers are finding ways to do more with less. Yeah. I, I sort of hate, like, monthly and quarterly product, uh, productivity stuff. It's just a residual number. It's very messy, uh, except over long terms. Although I will say with regard to the regional Fed PMIs, there are models that show if you compute all the manufacturing indexes, that maybe that's suggesting we're, we're up off the lows and that can be a net contributor to the economy. Well, prices paid were also strong, which people look at. <laughs> that is true. So that's something to watch too. Although. They're kind of all over the map, Mike. Philly Fed was strong. New York Empire Manufacturing this week was, was pretty weak.
Yeah. No, it's true. I'm just saying that the models are suggesting that we're you know, bumping along a low. Um, I guess we maybe just mentioned Apple. We saw it. We mentioned it earlier. It's down seven tenths of a percent again today. One seventy two. Uh, really, it breaks below the early 2022 highs. If you look at the two year chart, it's also below its highs from last August. And my, the explanation for me is the and I mentioned this at the time that linear climb of the roller coaster we got in the, fir- in the few, few months up into the July high that you couldn't explain by earnings estimates going up, excitement over new product cycles, about anything except this is the kind of stock we want right now. It's 7% of the S&P. We can't own enough of it. So I think we're having an unwind of that effect. You got valuations up toward you know, pretty much forever highs in the iPhone era. And, uh, and, and so th- this payback phase uh, is interesting. But I also would note, uh, yes, it's down what five and a half percent, six percent. Apple's down twice as much from the highs. That's a, I mean, those peaks are fascinating in the 170, 180 yeah. range. Really yeah. interesting. It almost, it's good. You know, people are going to look at that and say, okay, I guess maybe we're back in that range, or uh, or it can make a stand here, whatever it is. But uh, it is interesting, and definitely the China, it's China. You know, piece of it is not Im- irrelevant. Well, what, second worst performing S and P stock this week is Tesla actually, which we don't usually see at the bottom of the pack, down 11% week to date. Could be a China story, yield story too, factors in there. And then some of the other worst performing stocks, Mike, are regional banks. Yes. Like Truist and Citizens and Zions Bancorp, which which lost a lot of air after this incredible run-up that they had from their lows. And they were late, right, after the, they lagged for a while after the SBB fallout. And, And now we're watching them again, as the talk is of, higher rates. Well, exactly. I mean, if you remember what the original uh, scare was, it was about uh, paper losses on their bond portfolios. And so what, what are you seeing right now? Which is just so ironic because high rates are supposed yeah. to be so helpful for banks, especially regionals and their profitability. Yeah, it's a broken relationship at this point. Yeah. Uh, Sarah mentioned Tesla. And there's a lot of news in the EV space, in the auto space today. Uh, Xpeng uh, with uh, a revenue uh, guidance that's way below forecast, inventory write downs, uh, margin compression. And then you got uh, page one of the Detroit Free Press today as uh, a story about uh, Ford prepping white-collar workers to do blue-collar jobs in the event of a strike. Yeah. Of course, the contract expires on the 14th of next month. Uh, Jim's been all over this. Uh, shares aren't actually down on Ford or GM today, though. No. Um, I mean, there's not a lot in those stocks in terms of you know high expectations and, and, and value for the long term. But um, look, the way UPS has traded since the Teamsters agreement has not been great. Um, and so I do think you have some alertness to, to that. And, you know, this is a time for workers to take their, uh, the deferred share of, uh, of the pie that they haven't uh, had for, uh, for a while there. And, um, you know, we'll see how it plays. I've seen some work that the auto parts re- uh, companies, like that food chain is starting to look like it's a little washed out. The stocks could uh, potentially work a little bit uh, better from here. But, um, you know, between the strikes coming and then you have Potential government shutdown September 30th. As I say, this stuff is always there, but when the market starts to act squirrely, people notice it more, and it starts to become a retrofitted reason for why the market has had trouble. Well, it also is a, is a reason why we could see inflation remaining persistent and sticky, especially on the wage front, where we're already seeing real wages rise faster than inflation, yeah. right, where finally we got that wage growth 
And now you have potentially hundreds of thousands of Americans on strike and receiving higher pay because of union action and because of strike. It worked at UPS. Um, Potentially another 150,000 workers in the auto industry. I think it's something the economists are paying pretty close attention to. Meantime, uh, we continue to monitor whatever progress there is between the studios, the AM, PTP, and the Writers Guild. Uh, The Writers Guild did issue this report in which they said that Disney, Netflix, and Amazon were the so-called new gatekeepers of media. Uh, I'll just read one line here. Each company is now taking anti-competitive vertical integration to an extreme, turning its streaming service into a walled garden for self-produced content. It doesn't sound like this is going to move along very quickly. No. How long now? A hundred and some odd days, yeah. I don't know. It's very complicated. I don't understand what a deal looks like because I think the issues like AI and streaming are new ones and they're difficult to, more difficult than hourly pay yeah. on the auto uh, line. Well, but the studios have offered to share more information on the non-monetary kind of non-long-term uh, income uh, royalties uh, areas that there's maybe some, some gestures of movement, but uh, in general. And meanwhile, the companies you know, are saving a, bu- a bunch of money right now. And as they talk to Wall Street and they talk to the analysts on the earnings call, they're like, Actually, you know, we're going to have upside surprises on the cost line because we're not spending money on content. And I think it's a really interesting question as to when and whether that comes back to bite in terms of subscriptions down the road and, of course, box office. The other group I've been watching and you have to be watching right now is the home builders because they've been so strong in the face of rising mortgage rates. But this week, things changed because... First of all, yields reached new highs for the cycle, and and so did mortgage rates. We're seven past and a half. seven, yeah, seven and a half percent on the average thirty-year loan, according to Bankrate. The the group is a little bit higher today, and and some people were wondering if Berkshire Hathaway's revelation in the 13F filing that they were buying the home builders maybe marked a, yeah. a near-term top. But also, at some point, and I know people are just locked into their three percent mortgages, and there's not enough home supply. But at some point, that's going to that's that's going to hurt because there's going to have to be a changeover and there, we know there's a weakness yeah. in, in housing supply in this country and there's going to be more demand. Yeah, uh, yeah. Beezer, Beezer, by the way, BZH uh, gets downgraded today over at Webbush, uh, although they keep their target of 32, just saying not many catalysts here. We're going to step to the side. Uh, speaking of all of this, um, we did see a little bit of nibbling uh, on bonds this morning. You see uh, yields down fairly, I would say, across the board. Yeah, uh, you got the 10-year back to Four, four and a quarter with the Dow down almost 80 points to start this Friday. Don't go anywhere. Ferrari is on a roll. Shares of the luxury sports car maker up more than 40% so far this year. Uh, Robert Frank is at the Pebble Beach car auction in Monterey, California today with a look at what is powering that company's growth. Morning, Robert. Good morning, Carl. Over 800 cars expected to roll over the auction block this weekend in Monterey. Over $400, $400 million worth, and the king of the weekend, as always, is Ferrari. Four of the most expensive cars expected to sell this weekend, four out of five are Ferraris. RM Sotheby's last night announcing what is likely to become the most expensive Ferrari ever sold at auction. It is a 1962 Ferrari GTO. That's the holy grail of Ferraris. They only made 36 of them. This car expected to sell for over $60 million in November when it's auctioned. Keep in mind, the owner paid $6,000 for it back in the 1960s. So from $6,000 to $60 million, that's a return even better than the stock market. You could look around at Ferraris from 10 years ago, 20 years ago, 30 years ago, like this F40 behind me. 
and see that they've just progressively, they've always gone up in value. Of course, they have dips and they go up and down a little bit, but long term, they're you know, a good place to put money looking at past history. The star of the weekend is a 1967 Ferrari. Bonhams is selling for $40 million. If you want something a little more affordable, this is a $3.5 million 1966 Ferrari. It's part of an entire collection that's being sold here at Meekum. 13 of them, 13 Ferraris sold by one collector, expected to fetch over $20 million. We are going to talk a lot about Ferrari values over time and how that feeds into demand for new Ferraris with the CEO Ferrari exclusive interview tonight on Last Call. That's with Benedetto Vigna, the CEO of a stock that's just been on a continued run this year, as you mentioned, Carl, up 45%. And a lot of that story is because their margins right now are more than twice that of Tesla. So these two car stories really about margins and how Ferrari is keeping that margin, even growing it at a time when so many companies, especially in the auto space, are under that profit margin pressure. Exactly where I was going to go in terms of implications for new Ferraris. Now that it's a public company, it's got a $78 billion market cap or something. They only still produce uh, and sell, what, 13, 14, 15,000 cars a year. It's, it's still low production levels. Is part of the sale today to a new buyer this thing is going to hold its value over the decades. And is that really a promise you can make? It is. You know, for a long time, it was the only brand where when you rolled it off the lot, it was worth more than you paid for it. Most cars depreciate at least 20% as soon as you roll off the dealer's lot. And over time, especially if you have a special edition, one with a special color like this one, they're going to increase in value. And a lot of the profit story is just that buyers today want something special and so they're adding these options that have increased profitability even though production is low as you mentioned mike they're making more per car because customers are adding so many expensive options to it and that's you know they have a three-year waiting list so even if we have a slowdown they'll be fine you know where they're not winning the only place f1 f1 <laughs> number four yeah. getting beat by aston martin robert i guess it's not impacting yep. sales we're Sarah, I will promise you, I will drill the CEO on what they're going to do <laughs> yeah, to improve that performance tonight. They do have Charles Leclerc, who is amazing. Do thanks, not Robert. mess with Sarah and F1. That's just advice to every viewer out there. Uh, Robert, thanks. I'll talk soon. Robert Frank. Uh, got near 1% declines on the NASDAQ, although we do have uh, energy utility staples in the green. Not by much. Don't go away. You've been listening to the opening bell on CNBC's Squawk on the Street. All opinions expressed by the Squawk on the Street participants are solely their opinions and do not reflect the opinions of CNBC, NBC Universal, or their parent company or affiliates, and may have been previously disseminated by them on television, radio, internet, or another medium. You should not treat any opinion expressed on this podcast as a specific inducement to make a particular investment or follow a particular strategy, but only as an expression of an opinion. Such opinions are based upon information Squawk on the Street participants consider reliable, but neither CNBC nor its affiliates and or subsidiaries warrant its completeness or accuracy, and it should not be relied upon as such. To view the full Squawk on the Street disclaimer, please visit cnbc.com forward slash Squawk on the Street disclaimer. CNBC has quick and easy to understand business news updates at the open midday and close every weekday. Markets, money, and more from Wall Street to Main Street. I'm CNBC's Jessica Ettinger. Follow and listen to CNBC Business News Updates wherever you get your podcasts.